This is Dennis Rimondi. I'm here with my co-host, uh, Phil Goldberg, our podcast and YouTube channel, uh, Spirit Matters Talk, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. If you go to YouTube, type in three words, Spirit Matters Talk, and you'll not only hear us, but you'll see us for those that choose to do that. Uh, our archives are open and uh, free and uh, open to the public with uh, of 300 plus interviews in there. And uh, if you can right now, whether you're listening or uh, watching us, please hit the subscribe button. Uh, and we have back on our show, very happy to have back is uh, Dean Slider. Uh, he is an award-winning author, uh, author of several books. Uh, he's been uh, mentioned in the New York Times, New York Magazine, USA Today, uh, the o uh, Oprah Magazine, and the Dr. Oz Show. Uh, he's a, a, a friend of ours for decades and uh, a meditation teacher, a former Buddhist chaplain at a maximum, maximum security prison. So Dean's done it all. And his latest book, The Dharma Bum's Guide to Western Literature. And Hold it uh, up, Dean. Go here, for it, Dean. Here, Held it up, yeah. Here thank, it is. Dean, thank you so much for coming back on with us. It's always an absolute pleasure have you on the show. It, it's really great to be back. Thanks so much. Uh, Dean, thanks for coming back. Congrats on the new book, which I have read uh, a, a good bit of and blurbed. And um, I know our readers will love it. Um, our readers, our listeners, and your readers. Your listeners, my, my readers. Right. And um, Listeners, uh, the first time Dean was on, we talked about his uh, personal spiritual story, which we always do with our guests. So we're going to skip those formalities, and we encourage you to go back and listen to our previous interviews with him. And we'll jump right into uh, the Dharma Bum's Guide to Western Literature. Dean, why did you write this book? <laughs> how many which times reminds me, which reminds me of the charlie brown car, uh, the peanuts cartoon where uh, lucy is asked that by a teacher and she and her answer was maybe he needed the money i know that's <laughs> not why you wrote your book <laughs> right right people people ask me about making money writing books and i say well uh, if you want a, a, a level-headed business plan, you, a better bet is to buy lottery tickets. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. No, I wrote this book because I had to. I, 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 I swear, for years, I had this feeling, this thought in the back of my head, which was, if I'm sitting on my deathbed someday and I have not written this book, I'll be really, really mad at myself. And I, I really, literally, I've, I've had that thing. And it's the only thing I had that about. So now I'm done. I, can, my, I know you, I'm, I'm going to um, verify that because you've said that to me many times over the year. And I've said the same thing to you about a book I'm not yet finished with. So uh, I right. have to stay alive for a little while. A little, little, okay, little while Okay, tell longer. us why. Yes. Okay, why, why was this so compelling? <clears throat> yeah, um, because look, someone had to unpack the enlightenment teachings of Moby Dick and Huckleberry Finn and, um, you know, 
Virginia Woolf and William Blake and and the whole Dr. Seuss. And I realized, A, no one else was going to do it. And B, I was maybe the most qualified person in the world to do it. Um, having had this, you know, as you, you mentioned in the opening, you know, a very a checkered spiritual career. Uh, I've been incredibly fortunate in, in studying with some really superb teachers and doing a whole lot of teaching from maximum security prisons to, you know, very fancy pants prep schools. Um, and teaching as an English teacher, teaching, you know, you teach Macbeth for 30 plus years and you start feeling, oh yeah, I'm seeing some stuff here that uh, other people, other people aren't seeing because I'm doing this while I'm also teaching Dharma, teaching the awakening path and, and practicing it. And uh, boy, there's just connections that, you know, I, I, I don't know if anyone else has seen the, the fact that when Huck Finn escapes from Pap's cabin and gets into the salvaged canoe. The first time he, we see him go on to the Mississippi River and it's in the middle of the night. And he, after all this frantic scrambling, he lies down on his back in the moonlight, looks straight up into the sky. And he says, the sky is ever so deep when you lay on your back in the moonlight. I never knowed it before. I go, whoa. That is an initiation. That is a baptism into the transcendent. And that's what initiates Huck's whole voyage and his whole growth right. of the heart with Jim. And I don't know if anyone has, has noted that before. I got to put this stuff together and put it on paper. Right. Well, I want to say that I met Dean in the 70s. And Dean had recently read a paper that I was really absorbed in. I was reading, who wrote this? I think I was given it. And then I, who wrote this? And it was uh, basically principles of consciousness, of enlightenment. Uh, I think at the time, the term was science of creative intelligence. What, what uh, that was in The Godfather and in other movies. And at first I thought this is going to be comical. It wasn't comical. It was very, very serious and it was right on target. So that was many years ago. Obviously, you've been thinking about it. You're still on the planet, likely to be on the planet for many more decades. Uh, and uh, you got it out. So yeah. the one book I wanted to ask you about, and I, I'm pretty sure you, you mentioned it in this new book, is uh, Catcher in the Rye, because one of my favorite books, read it uh, years ago, read it again. Then recently I was on a trip with my wife and we listened to it on Books on Tape. Never fails me. Fantastic. Golden mm -hmm. Caulfield. Uh, give us some angle on, on, on that book and what inspired you. I'm going to uh, fix my lighting here, but I can hear you. Okay. So... Um, the Catcher in the Rye, for me, represents what actually our old teacher Maharishi used to call the restlessness of the seeker, right? And he talked about the being in the position where you've left the hut, but you haven't yet reached the palace. You're in that in-between place. And, and Holden really represents that, that uneasy, restless consciousness that so many people have that realize there is something unsatisfactory about what is being offered to us as the good life. There's some, you know, he calls it phony. Um, he, he, he intuits that there's something shallow about it, that there's got to be something else, but he doesn't yet know what it is. And he never 
never quite finds out in The Catcher in the Rye. That's actually the beginning, I would say, of the arc of Salinger's writing. And then in the later writings, in all the, the Glass family stories and novellas, he pushes it further. And then he st essentially starts to answer in the later stories, he answers the question that, that Holden asks, okay, this is what you were looking for. He, Salinger in 1953, right? When Joe McCarthy was was at the height of his reign of terror and how much is that doggy in the window was at the top of the pop yeah, charts right. i mean that's what a no, what a nowhere place america was in at the time salinger published in the new yorker a short story that you may know called teddy about a 10 year old boy who's an enlightened sage who recalls his past incarnations and recalls being a, you know, a, a, a monk in India who got led astray, led off the path by a woman. And, and a, lady. a lady. He met a lady. <laughs> he met a lady. Thank <laughs> you. Yeah. Uh, the early and, yeah. Yeah. And, and so here's Salinger at the height of, you know, American uh, literary fiction at the height of success, having the chutzpah to, okay, I'm going to inject straight up Vedanta teaching into this. And, and hopefully people will, will be able to follow. And they did. I'm so glad you, you single that out. And you, you once pointed that out to me in a private conversation, because we were both big fans of Salinger's, uh, explicitly spiritual writings in later work. Mm -hmm. And uh, you pointed out what you just did about uh, Catcher in the Rye. And, and you're right. It's like the beginning of an arc. It's right. almost as if uh, Holden grew up to be Buddy Glass or one of the other, you know, siblings mm -hmm. in the Glass right. family. Right. Uh, Dean, that's one of the unlikely uh, stories uh, or mm -hmm. works mm -hmm. in the book, um, as you did in your with movies in uh, Cinema Nirvana, uh, you don't take the easy way out. Um, some of the choices, uh, if you just look at the table of contents, you know, you cover uh, 22 works, mm -hmm. authors and, and uh, works. Um, some you say, oh, yeah, of course, it's spiritual. William, yeah, Blake, William Blake, Emily Dickinson, Emerson, Emily right. Dickinson, Coleridge, you know, mm -hmm. of course. But then and Gerard Manley Hopkins, Whitman. But then in the middle of this, you see Ernest Hemingway. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You see F. Scott Fitzgerald. Yes. You see. Yes. Virginia, Oklahoma. So <laughs> yes. Before I, I would love to go into some of the unexpected ones right. specifically, but before we do, maybe you could just sort of speak to the principle of finding uh, the Dharma teachings in uh, where you least expect it. Yeah, um, you know, essentially, Phil, you're talking about uh, there's the loaf hanging fruit and the high hanging fruit, and 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 um, you know, you can't not write about Whitman and Dickinson and 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 Blake. And I like to think that even in with the low hanging fruit like that, I've brought some insight there that may be 
new or fresh to a lot of people. For example, there's this just bombshell of a couplet from Emily Dickinson, um, where she says, not revelation tis that waits. And she puts the word revelation in quote marks, not quote unquote, a revelation tis that waits, but our unfurnished eyes, right? Whoa, unfurnished eyes. That's a direct translation of the Buddhist term naked awareness. Hmm. Right. And that and she lived at a time, as I note in the book, of, of great spiritual ferment. And you had the shakers and the, the Mormons and everyone. Here's the revelation. Here's the truth that God is is revealing to us. And she's saying she's dissing them all in with one droll set of quotation marks. Right. So that those air quotes are devastating. No, it's because she understands that any revelation, anything that's revealed, even if it's, you know, a hundred thousand angels singing hosannas and whispering the God's message in your ear, or for today's modern seekers, a hundred thousand volts of kundalini running up your spine and your crown chakras exploding and you know purple rain, whatever, <laughs> that is still content. Right. You are experiencing, it is something that you're experiencing. It's an experience, and that means it's experience X rather than experience Y, and that means it's finite. The only thing that's infinite is the experiencer, is awareness itself, our unfurnished eyes. And man, she's just right on it there. And in two little lines, in completely plain language, in an era when poets, especially lady poets, were expected to write very flowery stuff. She's got this tough, plain prose style that's, you know, Hemingway, way before Hemingway. <clears throat> uh, Dean, I want to uh, have you comment on something uh, Phil Goldberg, my co-host, wrote about your writing, your book, and, and I thought it really hit it on the, the nail on the head, but I want to hear your comment. And he wrote, uh, this is Dead Poet Society meets the Buddha. <laughs> A yeah. few words on that. Phil, uh -huh. that was really well done. Yeah. Well, um, uh, uh, thank you, Phil. Those are, those are kind <laughs> words. Um, you know, Dead Poet Society, you know, the teacher, the actual teacher that, that the Robin Williams character was based on in that film, I once interviewed on the phone for a, a writing project years ago. And he was great. He was actually much funnier than the Robin Williams version. Um, yeah, so like that teacher, I, you know, I was an English teacher at a fancy prep school. Um, and I was injecting something into the campus life there that they didn't have before. In fact, my first four or five years there, there were people in the administration that were actively working to try to get me fired um, because they believed, oh, this, this is a dangerous, subversive, hippie. You know? uh, and it took them a while. And because these were really traditional blue blazer prep school guys with crew cuts and all that, and nice guys just from a different set, you know, uh, and eventually they realized, oh, this guy's a good teacher. Um, so yeah, that's there. There's the, the Dead Poets Society. And I like to think that I helped some kids fall in love with literature. Um, 
you know, and there's some things you, if you pay attention, there's some things you learn about teaching. I mentioned it in the book. If you're going to teach the Canterbury Tales, and you mentioned Canterbury Tales and just people's, you know, eyes, people roll their eyes. And mainly it's because teachers usually teach it starting at the beginning. What I always did was I went straight to the really dirty ones, the ones full of, you know, the, 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 the sex pranks and the fart jokes and, and all right. that. And then the kids are hooked. Then you can go, go back to the beginning. Uh, and the other thing I did was I brought meditation to the school. Um, I, you know, every English class I taught, there's some excuse to weasel meditation in the, you know, American lit. We start with the transcendentalists. You can't read the transcendentalists without transcending. So we do some meditation. Um, and it was great because one thing is I learned that, hey, 15-year-olds can meditate. It's easy peasy. If, if It's interesting. It's much easier. 15-year-olds get it right away because they're, they're closer to, you know, the Zen, the beginner's mind, the, the, to enter into the kingdom, be like a, a little child. And of those, the students who, they all got it eventually. The valedictorians took a little longer. The kids who got it right away were the jocks. Mm. Because they were used to approaching things in a simple, direct way. Dean, I wasn't going to do this, but since you mentioned uh, English teachers and their influence on the young, uh, in your introduction, in addition to Alfred E. Newman, you mentioned uh, as a very early influence that brought you to where you are with this book was your high school English teacher. Maybe we can pay homage to him right now. Yeah. Oh, yes. John Frisius, my 10th grade English teacher, uh, changed my life. He's, he, you know, I saw him. He was, you know, I, I talk about it in the introduction of the book. He was a genuine wild man. He had gone straight from high school to the, the battlefields of Europe in the Second World War, came back, and he, he was not going to take any stuff from anybody. And he swore he drank and he read poetry and he had a, he had a catchphrase. Uh, he would read a poem and, you know, his, it was like hearing Laurence Olivier reading the poem with occasional asides from Groucho Marx. Um, and then he'd get to the end of the poem and he'd say without fail every time, every, he had a lot of kind of verbal rituals, including a lot of bad jokes that you heard constantly. It was great. So he'd get to the end of a poem and he'd say, okay, let's take our shoes off and run through it. And then we would go back through and he would explicate it, revealing all the gears and, and pulleys of, of poetic technique, how it works. And, and that changed my, my life. And for my 33 years teaching English myself later on, I could not explicate a poem without first saying, okay, let's take our shoes off and run through it. <laughs> that, that was me. That was that was me. That was me plugging into my my guru lineage. Right. Yeah, I, I want to say I uh, had the pleasure of visiting Dean at his school and actually sitting in on some of his classes twenty sometime years ago. And I'm sure the influence that teacher had on you, you had on many of your students. And when I look back on my school career, elementary school, high school, college, graduate school, there are two teachers that stand out. And one of those was my ninth grade. English teacher who just blew my mind, changed my life, same sort of stuff. And I tried to, Mrs. Miss Tannenbaum, I haven't been able to track her down, uh, but uh, huge influence on my life. Uh, tell us about 
you, 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 one of the books you, you discuss in, in your book is uh, uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald, The Great Gatsby. Now that's one I'd have, I'd really struggle to find any connection to enlightenment with, but uh, I think that you, you, you had, you had the angle there at uh, be your own light. Uh, tell us about that. Yeah. Okay. What makes Gatsby great? What is great about Gatsby is his yearning. Gatsby yearns. The very first time we see him through the eyes of Nick Carraway, the narrator, uh, Nick has moved into the, the house next door to him on West Egg, uh, on the North Shore of Long Island. And he's, it's the very first time he sees his neighbor, Gatsby. He's been hearing a lot about him. And he sees him, he's standing out in his lawn in the dark, um, as, as Fitzgerald says, regarding the silver pepper of the stars and considering which, which portion of the heavens was his. And then he's about to call out to Gatsby, but he realizes Gatsby standing there in the dark is holding his arms outstretched in this, in this pose of, of yearning. It's the, 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 the yearnasana. And, uh, and, and Nick says, and even though I was whatever, 100 or 50 yards away or something, I, even from that distance, I could have sworn he was trembling. So Nick looks toward the, the, the sea. Um, actually, you know what? This is the one mistake I have in the book. I say he looks across Long Island Sound, and our mutual friend Dan Jackson recently <laughs> pointed out to me, no, it's not Long Island Sound, it's Manhasset Bay. Okay. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so, so that's been fixed in the audio book edition. Okay. So he's, he's yearning out across Manhasset Bay, to a distant green light. And later on, we find out, oh, that is the green light at the end of Daisy's dock. And Daisy is Nick's cousin, whom Gatsby is in love with. And Gatsby is just convinced she is the missing piece of his life. She's the one, once he gets Daisy, that's going to be the solution. Everything's going to be fine. Well, we know how those things turn out. Um, but what, see, because as I say in the chapter, there's, there's, there's two problems with, with having that kind of great yearning where you're sure that this thing will be the solution to your life, this person, this job, whatever it is. There, there's two kinds of tragedy that can come with it. One is when you don't get what you want and the other is when you do. Right. And he manages to get together with Daisy. He has Nick arrange a rendezvous. And now they're together for the first time at Gatsby's house, and they're looking through the fog across the water to where the light is. And um, Nick uh, Gatsby realizes that now the green light has lost its magic. And as, as Fitzgerald says, his count of enchanted objects had diminished by one. Right, because as long as you're yearning for the thing, as right. long as the desire is not fulfilled, that becomes your stand-in for the infinite. Really, that becomes your facsimile nirvana, and and we, without even even if we've never heard words like samadhi and nirvana, we invent. We all have the intuition of that that that's what we need, what we're looking for, and we invest the that 
that yearning in these things, in these people, and convince ourselves that that's what they are. They embody nirvana until, you know, we get them. And then it seems that way for about 15 minutes. And then, okay, what's next? What, right. what's, what, what, what will I get for next Christmas? <laughs> uh, Dean, let's, uh, among the uh, many choices that uh, somebody who knows the works would say, really? Enlightenment teachings in that uh, is Macbeth, oh. which to most people seems relentlessly bleak and dark and um, yeah, yeah. people yeah. are being killed and you know all, all yeah. the worst of humanity is, is being presented to us by Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Tell us why you chose it and what you saw in it that's not so obvious. Okay. Well, first of all, I chose it for exactly the reason that you're saying. Um, <laughs> and, and the one that, if anything, is even bleaker is waiting for Godot. And mm. I've got that in there, too. Um, and actually, as I say in, in, in my chapter on waiting for Godot, I say it's as if life is a jigsaw puzzle with two, only two pieces samsara and nirvana, right? Samsara, so-called ordinary life, literally means wandering in circles, the the confusion, the unfulfillment of unenlightened life, samsara. The other is nirvana, those those two pieces. For most people, one of those two pieces, the nirvana piece is, is missing. And that what Beckett does in his in Waiting for Godot and his other writing, it's like he scrapes his body across the jagged edge of the samsara piece of the puzzle, you know, till he bleeds. But but by implication, you know, that implies, okay, if that's what that edge is like, what would the other piece be like that would make it whole? You know, and we and we can we can. Um, uh, extrapolate, you know, if, if life without, if life the way it is, is the hell that, that Beckett presents, what would be the, the solution to that, that, that should exist, God please must exist, you know, for, for existence to not suck. Uh, So I had a lot of fun with that. Now, Macbeth, first of all, you know, when I used to teach writing and you teach kids how to write a formal essay, where normally you put the thesis statement at the end of the first paragraph. Analogous to that, at the, the very at the very end of the first scene of Macbeth, right? We have the we get the three witches, and they're agreeing they're going to accost Macbeth when he gets finishes his battle, and then they chant at the very end. So it's like the thesis statement of the play. Foul is, fair is foul, and foul is fair. Hover through the fog and filthy air. Wait a minute. Fair is foul? Foul is fair? Black is white? White is, how can that be? You know, they're making a statement of the equivalency of opposites. Now, usually that's interpreted as, okay, this is the moral fog that Macbeth is about to wander into and he, you know, decide he kills Duncan and so, and, and, and so forth. Um, and yes, it's that, but it's much more than that. 
the things that we think are fair, the things we think it's lovely can turn out to be not so much. And ev everything contains its opposite. Everything, in a sense, is its own opposite. And that's, that's from the first scene. Um, usually, Macbeth, the play Macbeth is interpreted as, you know, they say, okay, he's a tragic hero. He's got a fatal flaw, that his fatal flaw is ambition. You know, he has this great ambition to be the king. But you know what? He's told at the beginning, you're going to be king when hereafter. Hey, all hail Macbeth that shall be king here. Well, but what's here? When is hereafter? That's, you know, well, manana, right? Down the, down the road. His, his flaw is not ambition. It's fine for him to want to be the king and expect to be the king. His flaw is impatience, Right? I, I, he, he, in fact, my title for that chapter is what's your hurry? What's your hurry? And I, I, I cite Meyer Friedman, the cardiologist who discovered, you know, the whole thing about type A personality, type B personality. Right. This is the guy that came up with that theory. He's a cardiologist. And the way he came up with the theory was one day he noticed that the furniture in his waiting room was getting shabby, and he brought in an upholsterer to, to take a look and give him an estimate to reupholster it. And the upholsterer looked at it and he said, this is very strange. In all my years in the business, I've never seen this. People's furniture, the cushions always wear out first in the back. Yours is all worn out in the front on the, on the leading edge. And Friedman realized, oh, it's I've got all these hypertensive types <laughs> who are like this all the time who sit in my waiting room. And, and that's the type A. That is, that's Macbeth. It's like you're literally leaning. You know when you're driving and you're late and you're stuck in traffic and you find yourself like, like psychically trying to be in the next block, but you're always really in this block and you're doing this, but this doesn't help. That's, <laughs> that's, that's Macbeth. Then his... The foil for him, in contrast, is Banquo, conveniently Banquo type B, who is, he's, you know, he's mellow. Okay, he, he's told, well, you're not going to be a king, but your, your kids, your offspring eventually will be kings. Oh, that's fine. I got all the time in the world. Let, let me ask, uh, Macbeth, I have to ask this. I think it's the beginning of scene four, where the, the witches uh, double, double, toil and toil trouble. And trouble. Yeah, uh, is that is that a state of mind? What what are they? You know, the witches. Well, there's is that a lot. Prediction or is that a curse they're putting on him? And how does that fit into his? They they they. Well, you know, you got a million literary critics that get to. This is what's fun. One of the things fun about reading, you know, studying literature, you can argue about this stuff forever. Double, double toil and trouble, fire, burn and cauldron bubble. The, the witches, first of all, there's three of them. They're connected with, they're, they're not actually called witches. They're called um, the, the Weird Sisters. It's spelled like weird, but it's pronounced weird, which is actually an old English word that means fate. They're the fates, the sisters. They're connected with the three fates of Greek mythology. Okay, so... And, and they're, the, they're the woman thing. You know, Macbeth is very good at killing men who stand in his way. But here's the, here's the female essence. Here's mother, they're connected with nature, you know, as, as, as you know, witches really very much come from the whole pagan uh, uh, nature tradition. Um, double, double, what I hear in that, 
double double that's like the 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 doubling of cells in in mitosis or meiosis right it's life taking place it's organic messy it's it's like their their cauldron is like the womb of of nature the womb of of the uncontrollable, the unpredictable, uh, while Macbeth is trying to hurry ahead in his straight line march to fulfill his goals. I mean, you know, as, as the saying goes, if you want to hear God laugh, tell her your plans. Equally unexpected, or yes, maybe even more so, is uh, a Broadway musical. Yeah. So we yeah. have elevated... Rogers and Hammerstein to mm-hmm. um, the level of the great world's literature. Yeah. I'm going to ask you to tell us why you included it, and I'm going to shut my sound because they're making noise outside. <laughs> okay, great. Um, yeah, uh, I, I, I decided I threw in a few surprises. Another one is is the Cat in the Hat. Uh, I, I needed to have some Dr. Seuss in there. Come on, here's the the world's best-selling children's author. When you get to be that, it means you've tapped into something universal, right? So I break down the cat in the hat. Same thing with Oklahoma. Here's Rogers and Hammerstein, the iconic practitioners of musical theater. And uh, so let's see. Um, oh. Oklahoma, where right? Oh, <laughs> one thing I do, <laughs> I, I go on for a couple of pages, but right, that ends with Oklahoma, okay. And I go on for a page or two about the expression okay, which is America's most successful export, more popular than iPhones and Coca-Cola, right? You hear, I mean, you guys know, you've traveled all over the world. You hear people who don't speak any English, they all say, okay. Um, you know, their languages have have words that mean, you know, things are all right, things are satisfactory. There's something about that expression. Okay. Uh, I think part of it is, uh, oh, is the open sound. That's oh, right? Then cake, that's the hard ground. That's the hard ground in terms of the sound. In terms of the... Yeah, the... Uh, yes, yes, thank you. Now I got to put that in the next edition. Uh, I do talk, by the way, Dennis, I do talk about Agni since we spent many, many, many hours hearing Maharishi right, break down the first syllable of the first right, hundreds of hours, probably. And I forgot I had to have to use that. So that is in my chapter on, um, on, on, on Coleridge and on, on poetry. Uh, uh, on um, uh, uh, Kublai Khan. Agni mire, purohitam yagyasya devam ritvijam, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that's in there. So yeah, okay. So O is the unmanifest. It's even the orthography that's a circle. It's the zero from which all the numbers come. It's the egg of creation. And then k, the K, the orthography, Actually, if you turn it on the on its side, there's the ground, the horizontal, and then there's like an arrow striking it. So that's the whole, I cite a few times in the book, another thing we heard from, over and over from Maharishi, Bhagavad Gita, chapter 2, verse 48, all together, class, 
Yogasta Kuru Karmani, right? Established in yoga, established in the boundless infinite, come out and do the deeds that need to be done. Transcend, then come back and fight the battle. And that's okay. And when did this musical hit? 1943, in the middle of the Second World War. People needed to hear that. They needed to hear about the integration of that and this. And they needed some kind of dream of, you know, is this an Oklahoma the soul? It's, it's, it's kind of cleaned up from the, the historical Oklahoma. There's no Indians there. I point out, uh, you would never, from, from the musical, guess that there were over, at the time of statehood, 1907, there were over 50 all-Black towns in Oklahoma. There's still, I think, 13 of them left that are populated by the descendants of slaves that were owned by the so-called five civilized tribes, five Indian tribes in Oklahoma, whose, whose civilized practices included Christianity and slavery, right? So you won't, history's complicated, right? And fascinating. So you won't hear that, but what you get is this dream. We all have a dream of a place that is 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 wide open, as wide open as oh, but where we can, you know, make make a life. Right. Where the corn is as high as a elephant's eye. Oh yeah. Oh oh, that's the other thing we got. <laughs> sorry, we got to talk about the fringe on the top. Was it? Yeah. We're, yeah, the surrey with the fringe on top. We're talking about that. But the very first, the people don't realize now how revolutionary artistically Oklahoma was in its day because musicals then all opened with, you know, up tempo and the orchestra is playing away and a line of chorus girls come out, you know, kicking up their shapely legs. This one starts where the orchestra dwindles down to a single flute, a trilling flute imitating a bird twittering in the morning, then fades away, silence. Instead of a bunch of chorus girls, there's an old lady in farming duds churning butter and from off stage you hear not a tenor because in those days most of the lead singers and musicals were were tenors like nelson eddie instead you hear a hearty baritone singing oh what a beautiful morning well, he starts with there's a bright golden right. haze on the meadow right which were the not only the first words of the of the show, the very first words that Hammerstein ever gave Rogers to set to music. And Rogers said later, I saw those words. I couldn't wait to get to a piano. They, they were so beautiful. Now, a, there's a bright golden haze on the meadow, right? What is a meadow? A wide, open, unspoiled field. Now, as meditators, we know about an open, unspoiled field. What is it like there? It's, it's, a, it's a haze. You settle down out of your usual activity. Things out there get a little hazy, little indistinct, but we don't fall asleep. It's a bright golden haze. In other words, it's restful alertness. <laughs> it's, the, it's the fourth stage. It's Turiya. It's exactly what... And, and the um, uh, uh, Agnes DeMille, who was the choreographer, said... When they, when they, the the audience heard those words the first time, and by the way, the the house was half empty 
because no one knew about this. They ran out, they found GIs on leave right. and in walking around the theater district, gave them free tickets, pulled them in. She said, when people heard, when the first audience heard those words, she said, I've never heard this any other time in, in all my years in the theater. The whole audience in unison went, ah. And it goes on. I've got a wonderful feeling everything's going my way, that you're supported by the you're supported by nature. What you when you get immersed in that. I'll never look at any of this place. the same, Dean. <laughs> well, that's this is this is what I do. <laughs> okay, wrap it up. But but uh, I, I, I let me ask one and turn it over to you, Phil. Just one last one. Was there any uh, if you was there any book if you do a, a later edition? Is there any book that you thought well I should have thrown that in that was next on your list anyway? Oh uh, yeah, there 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 there's a but, lot. Where to where to start? I you know I I would. I mean, I would love to do James Joyce, but I don't, I don't dare, you know, that would be a, <laughs> I, that, that would be a okay. lifetime longer than, than what I've got available. Um, I, at the end, I make a couple of suggestions in the last chapter for where you might want to go next. And one of them is Pale Fire by mm. Vladimir Nabokov, um, which be, is, is a whole story told in a series of of literally insane psychotic footnotes to a 999 line poem, right? <laughs> the the thousand, an unfinished poem, the, the 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 last and thousandth line of which may or may not be the same as the first line. And the poem begins with this image of a bird, uh, of this, cre this creature, this bird meeting its death and or nirvana. And it goes like this. I was the shadow, right? The reflection. I was the shadow of the wax wing slain by the false azure in the window pane. I was the pile of ashen. I was the smudge of ashen fluff. And I lived on, flew on in the reflected sky. <sighs> okay, folks. Uh, we have to go, unfortunately. Um, listeners, viewers, Dean, hold up the book again. Here we go. The Dharma Bum's Guide to Western Literature. Finding Nirvana in the Classics. Ken Burns, a life Yes, Ken Burns says, a wise and wonderful book. Great job. Viewers, listeners, you will not only appreciate works that you might have been forced to read in high school or college or maybe never read, but you will read them differently if you read Dean's book first, and you will be getting a lot of spiritual wisdom at the same time, a double dose. So uh, double, thanks. Double. Double, double, yeah, double, double, double. <laughs> no toil, no trouble, yeah. Thanks, Dean. Thank you, Dean. Thank, Thank you. Guys, it's always so much fun. Bye.